Well, just to be clear, I won the bet. So I knew what time we'd be starting. We're a team. We are a well-oiled machine. Yes. Let me pray. We're going to get started on Hebrews 12 today. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity that you bring when we allow you to clarify things, to simplify things, to make us understand that often we complicate it. Um, and by we, I mean me. This week, um, trying to tackle this chapter has not been easy, but you knew that. You knew that it wouldn't be easy. You sent letters like Hebrews um, to show me and tell me who you are and how this whole race is going to play out. Thank you, God. I thank you for Hebrews 12. We thank you for um, the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. We thank you that you give us a finish line and that you are an all-encompassing fire. We thank you for those things that we know. We pray hard over the things that we feel. And we pray, God, that today we can understand a little bit of how those reconcile, Father. Thank you for your son, above all, who died for our sins so that we can live and we can run the race and we can finish well. And we thank you for all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you weren't here last week because if you would have been, it was quite messy. Then you may come up and take a look after that storm came through. It's crazy stuff, right? Um, I fully believe that there are no coincidences in this world. And I also fully believe that God loves me so much that he let me have one more week at Hebrews 12. I told all the girls that morning, I'm like, is it really wrong that when I got the call, I was kind of like, oh, yes, <laughs> we get another week. Um, challenging stuff we covered this week, but I'm proud of all of us for enduring, for running the race, um, and, and, and for opening your Bibles to Hebrews 12 and actually digging in and taking a shot at it. Because all of us, um, we are not all-knowing, but we are seeking truth, and God will honor that. So with that said, open up your Bibles again to Hebrews 12. I know you covered so many awesome, deep things in your homework. Um, I'll tell you, I know I say this every week because I go back and listen to some of the stuff I say. And um, I know I say this every week. I'm like, oh, it's so full and there's so much stuff and it's hard to decide what to talk about. But guess what, y'all? This week, it's so full. There's so much stuff to talk about. I don't really know. But honestly... um, I, I was talking to Amy before, and I said, you know, I, I felt like when I sat down and looked at my notes and all the awesome information, and if you're a nerd like me and you just dig into all these big, giant books, so much great perspective from great theologians that have examined this chapter. But really, really what it all comes down to is the simplicity of running the race with Christ. And and there's a reason that we get this analogy of a race, and we talked about it in our groups, and I know you did as well. But honestly, it comes down to why are we even trying to run the race, and what does this race consist of? When you think about what we looked at last week, last week? No, there was a tornado last week. The week before, we talked about that chapter of champions, didn't we? We talked about these great examples of biblical faith that while they were obedient and did all these cool laundry list of things that the Moseses and the Abrahams and the Rahabs did, that it was by faith, right? It was by faith that they were righteous, not by what they did. And so that's what we talked about before. Well, this week, now the author of Hebrews is getting us close to the end of the letter, right? And so what he's trying to show us is 
Here's how you take that biblical faith that we've talked about, and here's how you persevere through it. Okay? We persevere through that difficult time, that endurance, all those things, the discipline that we looked at in Hebrews 12. And so we remember that this audience, they've been warned, right? In chapter 2, we saw the first warning where it was like, you're starting to drift away, guys, so come back around. Here's what's happening to this, this group. They're weary, And they're tired. And a lot of them know that opposition is building and building. And their resolve is weakening and weakening. Anybody in a place like that? Don't raise your hand. Okay, or raise your hand because I'm right there with you. If you're not there now, you have been or you will be. Opposition is rising. Your resolve is weakening. And so he knows his audience. And so that's what Hebrews 12 is. Hebrews 12 is this call to them to get on the starting line of this race. And he tells them really to do three things that we're going to cover today. He tells them how to start the race. He tells them how to endure the race. And then he tells them how to finish the race. And so that's how we're going to look at Hebrews 12 today. So if your Bible's not open, go ahead and open it up. I'm going to start out by reading verses 1 through 3. And we're going to look at, there is some big, heavy, ginormous stuff that we learn about how to start this race in the first three verses. Right? Starting in verse 1, Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Remember that therefore is pointing back to what we just talked about in Hebrews 11. All those crazy, by faith, by faith, all those witnesses. Okay, so the therefore is like, hey, I gave you all that. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne. Verse 3, consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I'm going to stop right there. Those first three verses, here's what the author of Hebrews does. He's going to set out for us this race analogy. Now, if you've ever read very much of Paul's letters, you know that he's all about the whole race thing. And, and at the time, this was like, you know, we, we love teachers that get, um, give us applicable metaphors, right? Things that we can kind of understand. And we talked in our group, I'm sure you guys did too, that some of us have run races, physical races, endurance, long races. Some of us haven't, but we all have a frame of reference. And so that's what the author does here is he knows that everyone's going to kind of understand if I explain it in this way. And it's, it's a beautiful illustration. And so here's what he does. He lays out for us first that this is an event. Okay. This is this race. And he says, quote, set before us. Right. There's a couple things to know about this race set before us that the author is talking about. He starts by saying set before us. There's no surprises. He knows the course that's laid out. Okay? We don't. And sometimes we try to manipulate the course. I have a funny story. You know, there's so many... um, It's so easy with all these race analogies because we've had races around our family a lot. But I was thinking about this and I thought, the race that's set before us, God knows the path. He knows the surprises. 
I wanted to tell you, I wanted to confess something. I don't think I've ever said this out loud, so it's a really good time to say it on a microphone. Good time to confess things. When I was... um, when I, did, when I decided to do my first marathon, and I'll tell you more about that in a minute because the person that inspired me to do it is in this room. But when I decided to do my first marathon, I had all these noble reasons and causes and motivations and I had this beautiful training plan and all these things. But you know what I didn't have yet? I hadn't picked which race I was going to do. And do you want me to tell you the um, criteria for which I picked the first marathon that I ever attempted to compete in? Do you know why I picked it? Because it was the flattest race in the entire country. Orlando, write that down if you're looking for a marathon. Yep. The only thing, this is what it says. I literally, I went back to the website this week, but it's been a while, so they've changed it. But it said in the website, when I, I remember when I first did the race, it said, the only elevation gain you're going to have is overpasses. I'm like, that is my race. I will do that race. Well, little did I know, I thought I could pick the path, and, and it still was dang hard, guys. I tried to choose the path. And it still was really hard, and I really had to endure. But I I thought of that as we were looking at this. As God already knows, he set before us. And even when we try to manipulate that and pick the easiest route, he still knows. And it's not always going to be what we expect. A couple of things about this first little part when we're talking about the event, the race, the event, is that word race. It's actually the Greek word for agon. It's like A-G-O-N, agon. And that word, can you think of something that comes from that word? Agony. (laughs) The runners over here are like, agony. Agony. That's where that word comes from. The word race comes from the word agony. Always demanding, agonizing at time, grueling, requires self-discipline. Here's what you can write about this. It is a marathon. It is not a sprint. No offense to the sprinters in here, but there's a really short amount of time that you're in dire pain when you run a 100-meter dash versus when you run 26.2. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's clarify. Thank you. Meters are different than miles. The other word that stuck out to me was that word endurance. And we start to hear it here, but we hear it throughout this whole chapter. But I want you to consider this for a second. I looked up the definition, and it was steady determination to keep going. And even when you're doing something and everything's happening and you want to slow down and you want to give up. And you know what? It came up to me. I started thinking about that marathon and looking at the overpass that had this much of an incline. Not really a big deal. But here's the thing. I kept thinking to myself, endurance, you know what endurance is? Endurance is keep going anyway. Keep going anyway. That's what he's saying this event is, this race is. It's the idea that it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's going to take a long time. It's the idea that you keep going anyway, no matter what. And it's a race set before us. It's a path chosen that we don't necessarily get a say in sometimes. He tells us about the event in these first couple of verses. But you know what else he says? He tells us that there's encouragement to run, doesn't he? You know, when you first see that in verse um, 1 that says cloud of witnesses, you know, we all kind of have in our mind what that means. Let me give you a thought about that. He's not referring back to these champions of chapter 11 for us to think of them like on the sidelines cheering. Yay, you go, go, go. No, these are guys that did it. The reason that we look at these cloud of witnesses as these great cloud of witnesses as an encouragement is because these are dudes that did it. You know, when I was motivated to run my first marathon, first of all, I said, I will never run a marathon because that is for idiots. No offense, Susan. Um, 
And then I went and watched my mother-in-law run a marathon. I know, right? She's incredible. I watched her run a marathon. And you know what it was? It wasn't the people that were cheering and watching that made me get stirred up and want to run a marathon. It was watching her run the marathon. It was watching her endure and struggle. And she had higher elevation than Orlando, I promise you that. But watching her do it is what encouraged me to even take a stab at it. And so that's what our author is saying is like, you've got clouds of witnesses that are not just standing on the sidelines, not just, they've done this. It's our time now to do this. They're not spectators. They're not bystanders. They're encouragement. He goes on to tell us too, and this is, oh man, I related to this part, that you're going to encounter things that are going to entangle you You're going to encounter encumbrances that will hinder you. They will tangle you up. They will ensnare you. Um, I think it was in the message it said this, which is horrible. It said, you're going to, there's extra spiritual fat. Like, guys, that's ugly. Don't say that. But that's what he's talking about. He's like, as runners, you're going to have all these things that are going to mess you up. And you know what's interesting about that? In verse one, it's two things. Did you see that? It's sin, but it's also weight. It's weight and sin. Weight and sin that cling so closely to us. You know, um, the word there in the weight is agkos. Agkos. And it's a prominent mass or a burden. I think back to um, all this stuff that we've learned about our Hebrew friends. And they carried so much weight. And you know what the weight they carried, some of it was? It was these old legalistic ways, all the boxes that they had to check, right, for all the years that they felt like they had to carry with them. They were pleasing to their flesh. They could keep score. There was check boxes. Well, I did all these things, so surely I can approach God. What is it for us? Is it comfort? Is it money? Is it food? Is it TV? Is it Facebook? Is it sleep? None of those things are bad unless. Food's not bad unless. TV's not bad unless. You know, he's not talking here when he says take the weight off. He's not talking about necessarily sinful things. He's talking about things that hinder and entangle us and can lead to sin, right? When I was training for some um, bike thing, I don't remember, triathlon, one of the things that they used to do to make us when we do our practice rides, and this is going to make you cringe, and I still can't believe I participated in this nonsense. We would take, you know how you have a bike on those bikes? You have a cage and you put your water bottles where you would think that would be a bottle full of water, right? Or a bottle full of coins. I paid this coach to tell me to do this. It's so ridiculous. But what he would do is he would take a water bottle and fill it with coins. You know why? Because now you're training with extra weight, right? So you're biking and you're struggling and you're going through all these things and you're weighed down and you're slowed down and all this. And the reason is because on race day, you don't have, hopefully you remember to take it out, um, you don't have a bottle of coins, And so on race day, you're faster and everything seems better and the hills aren't as hard and, you know, your cadence is faster. And it reminded me of this. It's like all those things that, that, that weigh us down, you know, what are the things that weigh you down when you're trying to run this race toward God, toward what Jesus Christ wants for you? What weighs you down? What distracts you? What zaps your energy? What dampens your enthusiasm? What keeps you from running? 
You know, it may not be like this big, you know, sinful Ten Commandment thing. It may be those things that comfort is not bad unless. Think about that. There's a reason that this author uses these two terms. He talks about the weight and the sin that entangle us. The second part, he talked about the weight. And then he also does mention the sin. It's, it's, it's believed by most scholars that here in the translation, we've lost a little something here from the original. But the original actually puts a, a the in front of sin. It's not a plural. It's not sins. It's actually the sin. And John 16, 8 through 11 talks about what that sin is. The sin that can entangle you the most is the sin of unbelief. He says this, and I'm going to John real quick. You don't have to go there. Just jot it down. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Note this. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Jesus knew that the biggest Sin to overcome for everyone is the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief. And so if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, I can promise you this. And even if you know Jesus as your personal Savior, I'll make you this promise too. There are weights that you are carrying with you along this, this race that is set out before you that are hindering you. That are taking you down. And and honestly, as I'm reading through this, I immediately, things start popping in my head. I'm like, oh, is that one? Is that one? But if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you haven't given him your whole life, the difference is then the sin that entangles leads to this unbelief that makes you go, yeah, you know what? I hear what you're saying about this Jesus guy, but I'm I'm good. I'm cool. I'm just going to, I'm just going to not. And that leads to this unbelievable, that leads to what we will learn later when we talk about at the end of this chapter about how he is coming back and he's coming back and ain't just mountains that are going to be shaken, right? It's going to be heavens are going to be shaken. And every single one will have to face him. So we're, we're, we're one verse in and we've got heavy, big stuff talking about this race. Well, he talks about those encumbrances and those things that entangle us. But then he also talks about what? The example. He talks about the example of Jesus. He tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. He tells us to consider him. I ask you this, where are your eyes? Where are your eyes? We have determined, all of us have, we can relate to the metaphor of running a race. We're running a race, but where are we running and what are we looking at? Are we looking back? Anybody ever have, like this is kind of funny, I was thinking through this. Back when I was a kid and, and when you're running and you go to track meets now, like middle school track meets where you watch these kids and kids cannot take it, right? Like if they're in the lead, they can't, they have to look back. They can't take it, can they? They're always looking back. But what happens when you look back? You kind of get off course and you make, the guy catches you half the time if you're looking back. And the other thing I remember when I was in track as a kid is I would always try to look and try to figure out, like even when I was lining up, I'm like, okay, I'm not doing it right because she does it like that. She does it like that and I'm totally going to lose. And none of that, none of that moved me closer to the finish line. Looking back, comparing, none of it did. Where were my eyes supposed to be? Fully focused. 
And he tells us we need to be fixing our eyes on Jesus. What does that even look like? You know, he defines who Jesus is. We've done that a lot in the course of Hebrews, have we not? But he calls him something interesting. He calls him the author or the pioneer. And then he calls him the perfecter. He's not just a pathfinder. He's not just like the witnesses where they've run the race and they're a good example. But he's the path maker. Who better to have your eyes set on than the path maker? He ran this race first. He sympathizes with our weakness, we know from Hebrews 4. And he was tempted in all ways but didn't sin. Hey guys, he's run the same race. Who better than to be watching Remember, as you're looking through all of this in Hebrews 12, and this is what I think if I'm the author and I'm sitting down, I'm like, I'm writing a letter to my people. This is what I'm writing to my people. It's almost like he's trying to say this. Hey, remember this. You are standing on the starting line, I hope, most of you, or at least you're partially into the race, and you are moving toward Jesus, moving toward this relationship with Jesus. But the newness wears off, doesn't it? And when the gun sounds and you start, your pace is usually a little faster, isn't it, in the beginning? This is what he knows about his audience. The newness is wearing off. Their enthusiasm is possibly falling away a little bit. And their fear is rising. And they're looking at the big hill or the big overpass or whatever. And they're getting really scared. And they're thinking, you know what, I could just go right back to before I got on the starting line. But instead, he's saying, there's a race set for you. You've got encouragement along the way. You've got encumbrances that you can overcome if you look to the example. How do we go from starting to enduring? You know, we talked about um, it being a marathon. And as Nikki pointed out, 26.2 miles. Never drop. Let me give you a tip for those of us that have run that distance, right? Everyone that's run this distance will agree with me. Do not ever forget the point two at the end. It's the hardest part of the whole race. And also, can I give you another unsolicited tip while we're at it? Um, If you're standing and you're cheering for people racing and you're at mile 25 and you're going, you're almost there. Don't say that. Don't you say that. Promise you, they're not almost there. (laughs) Right? It's hard. And that's what he moves us into in verses 4 through 11. He says this, here's the race. I've laid out, this is the race, and this is how you're going to go. But you know what? Guess what? I got news. It's going to be hard. It's going to be so hard. He does not candy coat anything in verses 4 through 11, does he? I would have preferred a little bit of candy coating, just a little bit. He doesn't. He approaches it this way and says, here's this race. And now what I'm telling you is don't grow weary because it's going to be long and it's going to be hard. But God... But God, my husband did a, a race and he's training for it again, which is equally insane. It's a really, really long mountain bike race and it's really high up and there's not much oxygen and it's just insane. But you know what? The founder of that race has this quote and every year when you go, you, he repeats it. And it's one of the best quotes, just a life quote. And he says this, you're better than you think you are. You can do more than you think you can. You're better than you think you are. You can do more than you think you can. And that's what I think of when I look at verses 4 through 11. I feel like the author of Hebrews is saying, okay, I've told you what this race is. I've explained all this. We've talked about the great cloud of witnesses. But now this is where we roll up our sleeves and we talk about hard stuff. 
In verse 4, it starts like this. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I'm going to stop right there real quick. What he's saying is, he's saying this. Hey, um, I recognize that there are big, horrible, giant things that are looming over this church that I'm writing this letter to. And I kind of feel like he might be saying that to us too because we always joke um, slash hide and cower in fear because we know things are coming, right? We know we're going to have to endure things that we can't expect. And he's saying to them, here's what I know. None of you yet have died a martyr's death, but it's coming and you know it's coming and you're afraid. They are being persecuted, guys. Think about this, from the Roman law, because we see little evidences of um, things happening, like they're being imprisoned and things that are happening that could only be happening if the government was persecuting them for their faith. But then they're also being persecuted by the people who were their family, who they were raised in the Jewish religion with, because all of a sudden they're like calling them traitors. How do you buy into this? So they've got it coming at them on both sides. And if he's writing this letter and takes an entire chapter to encourage them in this place, know this, big giant things are coming. And we know that. In the New Testament, when you look at the other readings, we start to see the martyr's death and the horrible things that are happening because of their faith. And so it's valid. But no bloodshed has occurred yet. Whose blood has been shed? Jesus. So he continues on. After verse four, and he goes into the whole, that whole part where we circled lots of words for discipline and endurance. And um, he, let me start with verse seven. He says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, We have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for good, for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Yeah, we've heard that before, right? But it's different. You know, we talked in our group today, like faith through, through struggles and trials and all of that, it, it makes sense when we're reading it talking about the Hebrews. You know when it doesn't make sense? When you're watching your kids suffer, You know when it doesn't make sense? When you're trying to figure out why God isn't healing a a, a spouse or a friend or when you see good people fall and bad people rise. That's when it doesn't make sense, does it? That's when we say, you're a loving God. I don't really get it. Well, Hebrews 12 does this. It clarifies some things that sometimes it takes a few times to get this. But let me give you a truth, and I hope that you leave with this. Regardless of where you are walking or where you will be walking or where you have walked, will you hear this? God's discipline is not his judgmental punishment. God's discipline is not his judgmental punishment. We sometimes make them interchangeable, don't we? We think if God is allowing things to happen in my life 
Because if I believe in an all-knowing God, he certainly can remove that stuff from me, right? But if he's allowing that, he's punishing me. He's giving my friend cancer. He's breaking my kid's heart. He's ruining my, my home. He's making people lose jobs. Like that's how he does what he does. That's not a very loving God. Challenge your thinking on that. Think, think this way. I, just, I wrote down, I needed this for me, honestly. I needed this week to be able to go, okay, God, what is the difference between discipline and punishment? Discipline and punishment, how are they different? And so this is what um, I found from this verse and then from other verses in the Bible. Um, so I would challenge you to do this on your paper. Write a T-chart and write God's discipline, God's punishment. And let's just compare the two for a minute. Just Let's just step outside of our own pain and our own struggles just for a minute And let's look at the difference, okay? God's discipline stems from his love. God's punishment stems from his wrath. God's discipline is God acting as a loving father. But God's punishment is God acting as judge. Both are necessary. God's discipline is God correcting to develop holiness. God's discipline is him correcting to develop holiness in us. And God's punishment is God's demand for justice to be met. His demand for justice to be met. And this was, a, this was a big one for me. So put a little star by this and hear me on this one. God's discipline is sometimes related to your sin. But then sometimes it's just developing or growing you or maturing you. Sometimes it's connected to sin. But sometimes it's development, growth, maturity. But God's punishment is directly linked to sin. Directly linked to sin. And the last one is this. God's discipline means that his consequences are often tempered with grace. Not always. Consequences are often tempered with grace. But God's punishment Full consequences are suffered. Full consequences are suffered. What do we know about God's discipline? You know, what, what can we be certain of? The thing is, when we talk about God's discipline, we all want to skip this part, right? We don't want to talk about it because I certainly don't want to look at things going on in my world and think that they're disciplined. I choose to just believe that, that they're just kind of happening. It's easier for me to believe that. Um, but I'll tell you, there's some hard truths about discipline, and I think we have to walk out of here because we're going to face that. I'm going to give you three. And one is this. What do we know and learn about discipline? And here's the first. He can remove trials and struggles and wounds. He can. Nothing happens by chance. 
You know, you go back and you look at Job, and we always talk about that. You know, the patience of Job and the trials of Job. Well, in Job one twenty one, he says out loud after he's torn his clothes, after he's lost his children, and it's like the beginning of the journey for him. And he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But you know what he follows it with? Blessed be the name of the Lord. He can remove the struggles. He can heal. And that's sometimes the hardest pill to swallow as a believer, isn't it? Yeah, but why? A few years ago, I had, um, I've, I will talk about it a lot because I do feel like now that I'm a few years past it, that it was absolutely discipline. Um, but I had shingles and that's nasty. That's yucky, yucky. Nobody wants that. Um, but you know what I look back now? At the time, I could never have told you that that was discipline. I could never have said that God was giving me that because that sounds like such a mean, nasty God. And I want sweet, loving God, you know, Jesus with the hair flowing and all that. Like, that's, that's what I want. But he is a loving God because he did let that happen. And it did discipline me. And it did change everything for me. Because in that moment, those trials that I was going through, those circumstances that I hated, that nobody could tell me was good, changed everything. They changed the way I said yes to things. They changed commitments. They changed my priorities. They changed my focus. All these things that were so out of whack a week before I was struck by this terrible illness. That's just me. That's just one tiny baby little thing where I look back and go, oh, that's, oh. And if you know me well, you know every now and then I throw that back out. Like any minute God's going to throw a shingle back at me and I'm always like, okay, I feel something coming. I've got to go. But I learned and it was awful and I don't wish it on any of you unless that's what he needs to bring you back to him. The second thing that we learn about discipline is this, that our weakness equals his sufficiency. Our weakness equals his sufficiency. You know, here's the thing with that. We've all heard that and maybe said it and like, you know, I always joke, like maybe have it embroidered on a pillow or something. But honestly, If you were able to walk, run this race without ever struggling, without ever encountering those horrible things that God has to use to refine you and discipline you and shake you up, then you don't really need him. I mean, you kind of got it all figured out. You're kind of your own God, right? It's all good. I think about Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, and he talks about that he's got this um, thorn given in his flesh. And you know what I, I always find interesting about that verse? It's, it's 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Let me read exactly how it says. It says, so to keep me, this is Paul speaking, from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. A thorn that was given to me. Why do we think, Chris Murphy, why do you think that you get a pass from being given a thorn? Why do you think that you get a pass? Paul wasn't given a pass. 
And God had to show him, my grace is enough. Even with the thorn, even with the shingles, even with the house that's having to be sold, even with the job that's gone, even with the illness, even with the broken heart, all of those things, my grace is sufficient. And sometimes we have to be shown that, don't we? Sometimes we have to be shown that and we have to experience that. The third thing we learn about discipline is this, that his discipline is evidence of his love. His discipline is evidence of his love. Now, that sounds crazy sometimes. It's fine for you, but not when it's me, right? It's fine when I'm reading about these people in the Bible and I'm like, gosh, why can't they see? I mean, do they not love the Lord? And it's like, hello, Chris, Kettle, you're black. Wake up. I told this story to our leader group a few weeks ago, and Maya loves when I tell this story. My daughter, Maya, who's almost 15, so, uh-huh, pray for me, 15-year-old daughter. Um, when she was little, we went to Target, and she still talks about it when she goes to Target with me, and we were in the produce section, and I had this rule, you know, because I'm such a good parent, and it was like, okay, if you're not going to stay strapped in, then you have to hold on to the cart with one hand. I bet she was four, something like that, little right? Little enough that I, she really needed to hold on with it. And she would blow me off all the time and ignore me and wouldn't hold on. And I'd be like, Maya, hold one hand on the cart. You know, you have to blah, 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 do the whole thing. And so guess what, guess what I did one time? She's almost 15 and she is scarred for life. Like seriously, still brings it up. One time she let go of it. And you know what I did? I grabbed my son and we, I said, come on. And we went and hid behind the watermelons. <laughs> it was, I still can remember four-year-old Maya and she just kind of went, she kind of she figured it out, she went. She's looking and then like the, the panic, you know, and I'm like, don't go yet, don't go yet. Just let her, let her be in the panic. She's got to be in the panic for a minute. And it was horrible, right? Because I wanted to rescue her and I'm such a bad mom, you know. I'm like, I feel bad, this was a terrible idea. But I didn't, I let her sit in it. And I let her be in pain and I let her be afraid. If you didn't know that she was my kid, you'd think that was pretty cruel and horrible. But you know that I love her so much that I want what's best for her. And I let her feel lost and I let her feel alone and I let her be scared. And she hates me for it. (laughs) But you know what? She never let go of the cart again. Never. She's 15. She still holds a cart. (laughs) Still talks about it. It, I'm telling you, we're going to have to go to counseling for it. But I will tell you this. I love her so much. Now, I I go to Target and I see you with your kids. And you know what I say? NMK, not my kid. Not my problem. I love your kid. Well, I appreciate your child. And I want your child to not go away. And I want everything to be okay. But that's not my kid. And I'm not going to discipline your kid. I'm going to work on my kid. And so when you read this and you see his discipline is evident of his love, he is a good daddy who loves you so much that he's going to hide behind the watermelons. Sometimes we have to do that. Because we otherwise we're the wild kid that never, you're sick of being lectured to. You don't even care anymore. Elizabeth Elliott shares this story of, um, you know, if you know who Elizabeth Elliott was, she's the woman who, her husband Jim Elliott was a, um, he was um, 
a missionary to the Aka Indians and, and, and she had her second husband and she later lost him to cancer and she would go and speak at all these missionary events and just like amazing, like her, you talk about, I'm struggling because I had shingles for six months. Like this woman has like suffered and been disciplined and seems like a saint to me. She spoke at this missions conference and she said this. I'll just quote this article because it makes it clear. She told of being in Wales and watching a shepherd and his dog. And the dog would herd the sheep up a ramp into this tank of antiseptic where they had to be bathed. Okay, so it was like, don't get wigged out by chemicals and stuff. Just focus on the story. They have to be bathed. It's good for them. The sheep struggled to climb out, but the dog would snarl and snap in their faces to force them back into the water. Just as they were about to come up out of the tank, the shepherd would then use his wood implement to grab the rams by the horns and fling them back into the tank. I mean, doesn't this sound terrible? I'm listening to this going, is this going to be a good story? He would hold them under again for a few seconds. And when Mrs. Elliot asked the shepherd's wife if the sheep understood what was happening, she replied, they haven't got a clue. Mrs. Elliot then said, well, I've had some experiences in my life that have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor rams. I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from the shepherd I trusted. And I didn't give a hint, and he didn't give a hint of explanation. But, she pointed out, we still must trust our shepherd and obey him and know that he has our best interest at heart. He'll go to any lengths necessary to bring us to him, won't he? And so as we run this race, we have to endure hardships and struggles and trials that discipline us. They may not always be punishments. Sometimes they are. But there's purpose in it. And of course, I'm running behind. And so let me finish with this. In the last verses, 12 through 29, he talks about finishing the race. Finishing the race. And finishing a marathon, 26.2 miles, requires perseverance. We know you got to start. Everybody starts. Lots of people start. But when the hard stuff comes and the endurance comes, to persevere and find your way across the line, that's a choice. It's not automatic. And it's the same with our faith. Like we think sometimes, we as in me, I'm never going to, you know, whatever. You think I accepted Jesus and everybody, we prayed and everybody sang and it was beautiful and I got a new Bible and has my name on the cover and everything's going to be good and I'm going to be fine. But then you read in Hebrews 12, but sometimes you have drooping hands and sometimes you have weak knees and sometimes your paths get real crooked and you don't know where you're going or what you're doing and it is horrible and everything's terrible and I want to quit. That's when you choose to persevere. That's when you choose to look at the example. That's when you choose to look at the finish line and remember that there's going to come a day where there's an all-encompassing fire of a God who's going to return and the heavens are going to shake and everything's going to shake and it's all going to make sense. When you're running a race, sometimes you put one foot in front of the other because you know there's going to be a finish line and probably chocolate or something on the other side. Perseverance is a choice. Perseverance will transform you. The mountains shook when we look back at Moses, but the coming mountains will shake, but the heavens will too. Listen, in closing, I want to say this. Don't quit the race. Don't quit. 
Don't be the Hebrews who are like, you know what, this is just too hard because this is what's true. Life is hard and discipline comes, but the difference is what comes of it is different for a believer and a non-believer. Anybody ever seen that? I got a friend, I got a friend who was newly married to her high school sweetheart and had a baby and that baby was so stinking cute and they just got their baby pictures and he was four months old and her husband drove off the road into a ditch and died. Well, how does that make sense? And I'll never forget the conversation I had with her where she said, you could have never told me six hours ago that I could do this, but because I have Jesus, I can persevere. She did, and he's in college. She had another kid, another husband, and they're good. And I'm not saying, I'm not making light of what she went through, but I'll never forget looking in her eyes. And right now, either you are going through that stuff or you're looking in the eyes of someone who is and you don't understand it. But here's the beauty is she said to me, I don't know what, I can't understand this. All I know is Jesus. Don't try to make it make sense. Just don't stop. Just keep moving. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Keep going anyway. Endure. You're better than you think you are. You can do more than you think you can. Choose to persevere. I'll give you this last little image. Too bad I don't have a picture. But Susan was there when I finished my first marathon. She was at the finish line when I practically crawled across the finish line. But I did. Finish the race. Start the race. Endure. You can do it. He's with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's hard. And you know it. And that's why you sent us this encouragement. That's why you sent Jesus the perfect example of a race run. Lord, you sent us and continue to send us these great clouds of witnesses, not as cheerleaders, but as as pioneers who go ahead of us. God, we can do this. And Lord, we ask right now, when, not if, the hard times come in this race, Lord, will you be the one to show us the endurance, to show us the perseverance, to show us the finish line, God, because we are weak and we cannot do it without you and we are struggling. Father, we love you, that you loved us so much that you came down and moved into our neighborhood and you did life here to show us how to live and then you died our death. You took our punishment, not just discipline. You took our punishment. And you're, you're not a God who has to do things over and over. It was one and done. So thank you, God, that you love us so much that you give us grace and mercy. So, Father, I pray that this week we can understand as we step out into this, this race that can sometimes be victorious and sometimes it feels just hopeless. God, will you just show us those places where we can trust you? And we, we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.